And so with that, we'll pray and we'll get into our passage. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would help us now as we turn our attention to this text. Uh, We thank you that we can worship you, Lord, um, here, Lord, through music, through our giving, uh, through the studying of the scriptures. And so, Father, we ask that as we enter this text, as we study Malachi, Father, I pray that you would help us to focus, that your spirit would uh, speak to us, speak to our hearts, convict us. Lord, ultimately, we desire to grow closer to you. And we thank you for this season where we um, kind of stop and focus on the first advent of Christ, his coming. And so, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas, we pray that even this last section of Malachi would would really um, encourage us, would really bless us, Lord, just understanding and seeing. Yet in this passage, he was promised that the Messiah fulfilled many, many prophecies, that Jesus isn't just some fairy tale that we've made up, but that he came and uh, has transformed our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, before we get in the text, I want to, since we were only doing three weeks in Malachi, I want to review, give us a little history on Israel, uh, so we see how Malachi fits in sort of the the historical study of redemption. This is represents the Old Testament. This chart, I did not, uh, I did not make this. My friend Google made it. And um, at the left side, we see the beginning of creation. Um, so we have creation over here, moving along the time period. Uh, we come to the Exodus. Uh, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of the wanderings, um, Joshua uh, came up in the ranks. And he led the nation into the promised land where they conquered the land. And after the conquest was completed and they were in Israel, um, the the judges sort of came, uh, I don't want to say to power, God the Father led them as a nation and the judges came to sort of help um, govern the nation in, in some respect. But by the end of this period, the nation of Israel looked at their neighbors uh, they saw that they were different. They yearned, they, they longed for a king. They cried out to God and said, we, we want to be led by a king. And so they chose Saul the king. And so here we see the monarchy begins at this point. Saul comes to power. Uh, he had a rough story. God, following Saul, raises up King David and says, you guys look at the outward, I look at the inward. This is the, your next king. And so David eventually comes to power. He leads um, Israel very well. He he obviously had some of his shortcomings, which hindered his ability to go uh, build the temple. Uh, Following David, um, his his son Solomon takes the the reins. Solomon reigned during a very... um, great time for the nation. He had all sorts of wealth. He had peace. David was so intent on building the temple. He got together all of the instructions, got all of the resources, provided the worship manual, did everything. So Solomon essentially just went to Ikea, brought home the instructions from Ikea and built the temple and followed through what his dad had prepared for him to do. Uh, The temple was built during this period. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a, was a bad leader. And at his, when he took the helm, the nation fell apart. The nation became divided between the north and the south. We can click to the next slide. 
Um, the, the kingdom was divided where we'll see in the Old Testament often you'll, you'll see the reference to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes and in 722, because of their disobedience to God, God disciplined them through the coming of Assyria and they were basically overrun by the Assyrians and they were taken into captivity. And so the northern kingdom fell in 722 B.C., um, about 150 years later, the prophet Isaiah comes on scene. He begins warning the nation that God's going to deal with them. He's going to deal with their sin. And in 586 BC, Babylon comes on scene. They take the southern kingdom captive. They carry them away. Um, that's the story of Daniel. We see Daniel and his whole upbringing. Um, but Israel is wiped, wiped out. Their people are scattered and will remain scattered for many, many years. We can go to the next slide. Uh, this is going to zoom in to the northern part of the Dead Sea here. There's Jerusalem right here. There's a green circle representing Judea. This is the window. This We, we come into Malachi's time. Malachi, uh, this was Israel or the people he was addressing during his writing. After 586 B.C., a few years later in 538 B.C., Cyrus um, allowed... Um, the descendants of Israel to return to Jerusalem if they wanted to rebuild their temple. And so by 5, uh, 5, 516 BC, some, what is that, 20 something years later, uh, Zerubbabel, he finishes building the temple. The wall around the outside was not completed. And finally, 445 BC, Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of the temple. Worship is happening again. They are sacrificing animals. The priests are there. Um, but the worship was sort of apathetic. They didn't care. They weren't offering God the very best. Um, and this is when Malachi sort of comes on scene. Uh, I believe he's born. Nobody really knows the details, but they believe around five, 433 B.C. He was born. By the time he's an adult, 397 B.C., 400 years before Christ is when most conservative scholars believe that Malachi was written at the close of this letter. You can turn on the lights and go back to the first slide. Thanks, Larry. Um, at the close of this book, God would send no more prophets. God would be silent. God, um, a, a lot happened during that period, but no scripture was written until um, the, the prophet John the Baptist sort of comes on scene. As we turn the page uh, next week and go into the Gospel of Matthew, um, John the Baptist is going to come on scene. John the Baptist is truly, in many ways, an Old Testament prophet that walks onto the pages of the New Testament. As he walks into the New Testament, as he comes about, prophecies from Malachi are fulfilled. And so with that, we, um, Malachi comes on scene. That we, we, I already mentioned that the, the worship was, um, they were going through the motions, but they were religious. There was no heart in it. There was no care. Uh, this letter, Malachi, which means my messenger, is sort of an exchange that God gives, uh, but his message to Israel and then Israel's response, it kind of goes back and forth. There are six oracles. We've looked at four of them so far. The very first oracle or burden or message from the Lord to the people of Israel through Malachi 
is the most important oracle and I believe sets the tone of all of Malachi. And that is in chapter 1, verse 2, where God says, I have loved you. The message of Malachi is that God has loved Israel. He cares for them. He cares for them deeply and passionately. And the hope is that because of, or the desire of God or the problem is, is that when you love at at this level, you, you would think that there would be a response, not that we can match God's love, but that there would be actually some sort of, wow, God, you've done more for me than I, or for us than we could possibly think or imagine. And we are so grateful we would respond or they would respond with passionate, loving worship and zeal for God. But their response gets to the heart of the problem. God says, I have loved you. And their response is, how have you loved us? You haven't loved us. What are you doing for us? You don't care for us. You're not doing anything for us. And God goes on to explain that this is a problem. He shares that I've chosen you not because you are special. My hand has been upon you, not because you've done great things, but because you are the least of all peoples. And I've chosen and selected you to be a light unto the world so that my name would be magnified. From there, he goes into the problem of worship how the worship was being conducted in the temple. They had clear instructions that when they made their offerings, their sacrifices, they were to bring their first fruits, the best, the finest of their animals, that they were to offer these gifts before a great and mighty, awesome God who had loved them. But God records that they were bringing blind animals, lame animals, animals that were not worthy of even trade amongst themselves. And the people aren't held accountable in that point. Who's held accountable is the priest. God says, you're the, you're, you're, you're the, the priest, my, my ambassadors between, uh, between myself and them. And I've given you instructions and you're allowing this worship to go on. I wish there was just one person, one priest who would shut the gates and say, stop, this is unacceptable. And God says, consequence is coming to you, priest, if you allow this worship to continue. And he longs, he reminisces over the days of Levite when he established the priesthood, when, when the, the priest walked in peace and knowledge and, and stood for God. And as, as they ministered to the people, people's hearts changed. They repented. They turned to God. Their hearts were for God. And God says, this is what I want. I have to discipline you in order to bring this sort of ministry back. Transitioning from the priest, God goes to the people, chapter 2, verse 10 through about 16. And in this section, God begins to challenge how the people were treating each other. The key word in that whole section is treacherously that they were treating each other poorly amongst themselves, their marriages. Um, men were, young men were marrying outside of the faith. Old, older men were leaving their wives that they had made covenants with for younger women not of the faith. And God says, this is wrong. You guys are calling evil good. And saying God loves those who do evil, but then at the same time you're you're saying, Where's the God of justice? 
And God then in chapter 3 gives the first promise of this Messiah to, to bring restoration because of his great love that he would draw people back to himself. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. I don't want to start reading the whole past, but we went through this whole thing that the Messiah would come, that ultimately reconciliation would come. In today's passage, verse 7, at the end of this promised Messiah, verse 7 we read, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God presses them with the issue. Malachi ends the Old Testament as they look backwards to the very beginning over the course of history, all of the commandments that God has given the people to follow. He says, from the days of your father, all of Israel, you have always turned aside from my statutes. If you can at some point in your life sort of read through the Old Testament really quickly, you know, like in your evening reading, just kind of crank it out one night. Um, what you see is this cycle of God being gracious to the people, the people responding, but then sort of growing bored and the the sin of their heart takes over. So they steer off course. Then God comes. He brings a rebuke. He disciplines them. The people respond to God. God then pours out his grace and they start going again. And this cycle just continues. The people rebel. God corrects gets them back on course. The people are doing okay for a while. And God here says that from the days of your fathers, you have always steered off course. And look at what God says in this next sentence. Three times he uses this word return, which is at the heart, the key of all of this. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how will we return? God says the problem and he he says, I love you. All I want is reconciliation. All I want is for you to come back to me. You keep steering off course. Return, return, come back. See in verse six, don't forget, God says, for I, the Lord, do not change. The problem is not with God. God is consistent. God is stable. The theological term is immutable, that he is consistent. He holds his course. God is the same today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. But God says, you keep departing, come back to me and I will return to you. What I want is to have relationship with you. This is a beautiful story of a loving God trying to do everything that he can do to bring his people back to him. And the people at this point then respond to God, how in the world are we to come back to you? But you say, how shall we return? God says, come back to me and I'll return to you. How are we going to come back? And verses 8 through 12, just at my first reading, and as I've been kind of studying, it just doesn't make sense. God says, come back to me, return to me, and I'll return to you. And the people say, well, how are we to to come back? So I think that the answer would be something along the lines of, uh, what's the Christianity? What's the thing? What do we say? Uh, Well, confess your sins repent, start going to church, start doing your, you know, start something along those lines, like spiritual discipline, something that would get your heart right. But this whole next section has to deal with money. 
And it's like, why? How does money, what's the correlation between come back to me? How, 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 how well, let me just rewind it. But you say, how shall we return? And God's response, how will a man rob God? Basically, you're robbing God. How do these fit? Yesterday, as I was thinking about this, because I'm like, oh man, Sunday's coming. Like, I got a deadline today and I got to explain this. I'm running out of time. A thought came to me. I remembered a few years ago, you know, I'm, my dad's getting older, and and um, as I've become a Christian so over the years, like we've had brokenness in our relationship, and we've we've come back or started fresh. Um, that our closeness in our relationship has sort of been restored at some levels. And I remember a couple years ago, kind of asking my dad, sort of like, "Hey, dad, how did you go from being a like a a, a pilot?" in the Navy to becoming a financial advisor. Like, I don't really see the connection. Like, is there some sort of like, did something happen that sort of changed or like, what, like just how did that happen? Like the same reason people look at me, like how did you go from being a Navy SEAL to being a pastor? <laughs> the math just doesn't work out. And I remember he said something that I thought was extremely powerful, but also very sad. And he looked at me and he said, well, Gunnar, my whole life, um, I was I was an only child raised by only children, and my relationships weren't really strong with people. But I've always longed for friendships and relationships, and I love people and having these relationships. But I don't necessarily know how to make them work. And I really desire relationships with people, and so. When I started looking at people, I realized that the thing that people love most is their money. And if I could become a financial advisor to help them make money and manage money, then I would suddenly have a whole bunch of friends because I'm caring for them. And I'm, I'm basically what he was saying, but not in his words, was sort of like their idol. He was increasing so that they would have security. And if he does his job well, then he now has all of his clients are not just clients, but they're dear friends. Uh, wow, that's like profound. And so yesterday, all of a sudden, I started thinking about that. And I kind of, as I was thinking about that, I think that this is how this shift into money fits this returning. See, we know from Malachi that one, two, that God says, I have loved you. He wants nothing more than this relationship. We see the rebuke, the problem, what's going on. But at the heart of all of this is not that God wants to bring fire and brimstone from heaven onto the people and just smite everybody. That's not to say that God's not going to do that. But his desire is that there would be reconciliation, that there would be restoration, that there would be this relationship with his people. And so he says to them, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how will we return? And so now God's going to hit their pocketbooks. And what I see in this, their giving, their tithing, what tithing forces out of a person is trust in God and dependence upon him and giving him thanks for what you have. And so it's a very tangible way to measure uh, where we are with God. And my desire here is that I'm really living on time. This first service, I went like way over and I'm going to try to spare you guys of going way over. 
as I want to read this and sort of explain what it says, this passage brings um, some heartburn. I can't believe Ben mentioned this like, during the, the, the offering. See, see, a lot of people, when we start talking about money, there's a negative response, especially to this passage for sort of two reasons. On the one side, on the prosperity gospel side, the, the TV evangelists, they use this like it's going out of style. And basically what happens in their approach is they paint this picture that God is this pinata in the sky filled with cash. And the way you bust open the pinata to release all of the cash, the stick you use is giving. And if you give to their ministry, that's going to be your stick that opens up the pinata because, guys, there's only one time in the whole Bible that God says to test me, and it's right here. That's, I'm quoting them. And so they use this, uh, they, they, they manipulate, they twist an arm of the person to give, but the whole motivation of the giving is to get. And, and that's not at all what I see in this passage in context or at, at the scripture as a whole of why we are called to give. And now on the other side, the other issue dealing with money that makes it a, a, a difficult thing is you have the people that will manipulate these things to, to basically swindle you out of money. The other side is we're just a sinful people and we like, we're greedy. We like our money. And so anytime we start talking about stewardship or money, I'm going to pull back. I certainly know I did. I fell into both of these categories um, as a Christian early on. And so, so there's pushback, and which then creates uncomfortableness uh, for pastors because then it's like, well, there's some of us who are not in those camps who say, well, we don't want to address this because we don't want to offend people. But the problem is, is the Bible does talk about money. And so there's an obligation to speak about money. And as we go through Matthew, um, we'll discover that Jesus, it's, I haven't done the actual like mathematical to validate, but I, I just trust them. But it's been said that Jesus speaks on money. Some like 25% of everything that he said had to do with money and wealth, um, which I believe. And, and there's another huge percentage of stuff that he talks about is like hell. Um, so Jesus spoke on hard things. And I think that the reason he speaks on these things is because these are things that truly sort of gauge the, the, the temperature of our hearts to him. And in this section, that's what I think God's getting at, is that he wants us to trust him, to walk with him. And our money is an area um, that we can measure that. So I'm going to read through this passage. I'm going to talk through it. And then I'm just going to give some points on tithing, and I'm going to move on for time's sake. Um, so verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this. So up to this point, God says, you've been robbing me. This is all a part of the worship. If we go back to the first part of Malachi, and we, as a priest are being scolded, there we see that what they were doing there was when they were supposed to bring a high-valued item animal that was free of blemish, that was of true use and monet, it would benefit their family, 
that was the standard for what you were to bring to the temple. But what they were bringing to the temple was animals that they couldn't use in their own trade. If they were, if they were lame in any respect, if they were blamed, these are animals that were not financially benefit, beneficial to them. So they were basically saying, we're making an offering to God, but they were doing it with their junk stuff. And so now God says, as you're bringing your offerings and your ties to me, you're not doing it fully. And in essence, you're robbing me. Um, we're so quick to, um, to, to the, the whole principle of tithing. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we think, well, the tithing was just a principle uh, in the Old Testament, sort of like it was just that clean cut that that 10% is what you gave. If you do a study of the Old Testament and you start looking at all the offerings and what they gave and you sort of take the whole year and you place it together, it's more like 25 to 35% is what they were giving. Um, and, and this particular, the testing, the food in my house, the best that I can tell is this offering, that, that this part that God is talking about in the temple, this is sort of the provision that the the I said pastors, but the priests, that they would live on. This was their sustenance. This was the, their livelihood. They were forbidden from working. Their role as priests within Israel was to, to sustain worship. And here the people were robbing them. And God says, test me in this. I'm torn on this testing. I certainly believe that it applied in this period, in this space, that when God says test them, he definitely means to them like this is true. Because following this, he says, in this as the Lord, um, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows, the kind of the pinata from the sky of, of resources, then I will rebuke the devourer for you. So those that are robbing the, they'll, the rodents or whatever, they'll, he'll take care of that. So it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the veal cast his grape. Your, 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 your grape um, plants, they're going to produce grapes, says the Lord. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. God says, test me in this. As you give, I'll prove myself faithful because I love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm, I, these promises are true. W- when I look to the New Testament, I don't see this promise necessarily given. Now, I do think that there's principles I found in my own life. I've seen it in other people's lives that as we trust God and as we tithe, as we give, God is faith. There's no promise, like, but, but, but in God's nature that as we walk with him, he blesses his children. It's not always necessarily financially. It can be. But it could be blessing in a whole different area. But there's certainly no promise. We are called to give, and we're going to look at that in a second. But so here God tells them, challenges them, give to me, trust me. I want your heart. And as you give, I will take care of you. I will sustain you. I will bless your crops. I will, I, I will strike jealousy in the nation surrounding you because it will be clear that my hand is upon you. This promise is legitimate to them. Now, when I look at this section in light of the whole of Scripture, um, I didn't even list verses because I'm really trying to speed myself up, and I can give you the verses if you want. Um, 
The problem with money, and I think what the issue is here, is money can become an idol very quickly. See, when I go down to Vaughn's and I want to buy some fruit or some cereal or a gallon of milk, I can't just walk out of there. I'm like, don't worry, guys. I'm going to take this, and just by faith, God's going to like hook you up for giving this to me. I'll see you later. What do I need? I need money. Like, so, what, so money is like super ultra, it's like it's very practical in our day-to-day life. Like if you want gas in your car, you're going to need to come up with some, some cash. If you want food, you got to come up with cash. Like cash is very like useful in our day-to-day lives. And so because of its usefulness, it's so easy to turn that into our God. And so if our bank accounts have lots of money, then we feel really comfortable and our little idol, our little God is really taking care of us. But if they're getting down, suddenly we have a whole lot of anxiety. But see, money is an innate object. And God recognizes one of the principles I see in this and all through the New Testament is that our hearts are prone towards idolatry. And money is not evil in itself. It is inert, but there is a propensity on our hearts, whether you have a lot or a little, both have both groups of people have a propensity to turn money into an idol. I heard a guy, and what did I hear him? I read, I was reading a bunch of, uh, not a bitch, like the three sermons that there are on Malachi, I was reading through them. And one guy, he told a story, he, well, he didn't tell a story, he said something about money and its importance that sort of struck me in a different way. He said that your money, how you spend money is writing your autobiography. And I thought, man, that is like a, like a, can be really convicting. And I've heard a bunch of times, you follow your money trail, it will, it can show you what you value, what you trust in. And, And God in this is saying, I want you to trust in me. A few years ago, one of the places I like to visit and thinking about this theme of idolatry and that your money is writing an autobiography, um, one of the places I like to visit is, um, well, I've done it once. So I say I like to visit, like I do it all the time. I did it once and it was a fun experience, is uh, the Hearst Castle in San Luis Obispo. You guys been there? You guys, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about? So you take the bus up to the hill and you get the tour and you're walking around and I'm going, man, this would be so great. I should have been Hearst. I, this should have been me, the private plane, the pool that's laden in gold. Like I'm going like, would they kick me out if I went swimming right now? Like if I just jumped in and started like, you know, I didn't try and I would have, I would have gotten in trouble. But I go through there and I think of like their banquet halls and, 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 and it's like, man, this would be so great. And then the guy, the, the guy who was telling us about Harry, I think it's, I don't know if it's Harry, but Hearst, um, he said that during, as the depression hit and things started going south, they had to sort of like rein him back. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but I remember during the tour, they said something like during the depression, when things got really tight, his accountants, who he really pushed back on, put some limitations on him and said he could only spend $10,000 a day or things were going to go bad for him. And I remember they're going, how could you guys limit this guy to 10,000? How are you supposed to live on 10 grand a day? Like, come on, let the guy live. Let him like just go for it. But then as they were talking and the more I did the tour, there was sort of like 
I'm, I would be lying to you if the, like, deep within me, the idolatry in my heart of like, going, I so wish I was this guy. Like that existed. But then there's the other side of me thinking, man, this is like just vanity and useless. And now that he's dead, he has nothing. Like California owns this land and people go through and take tours, but all he's known about is like the, 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 the vastness and the grossness of his wealth. I'm sure he did more stuff. I know he did a paper and stuff, so he reported the news. Um, but then I think of another wealthy guy. Uh, a few years ago when I went to Mongolia, Richard, who came with me, is a guy, he's a heavy equipment operator. And so he started sharing the story about this guy named Letourneau who most of you probably don't know who Letourneau is. Do any of you know who Letourneau is? One guy, there's a couple guys that know Letourneau. For those of you that don't know who Letourneau is, there's Caterpillar trucks, like the big heavy earth equipment movers. I'm not a construction guy, so I'm going to use all the bad terms. But they, You know, the big trucks that make a lot of noise and they move earth. Letourneau was sort of the inventor of this modern day machinery. And he wrote a book um, titled his autobiography, Mover, of men and mountains. And so as he basically became very, very, very wealthy, um, he had a heart for God. And so when you like study him, like really the autobiography that his money wrote was not about his lavish lifestyle. What it was is that you start thinking, this guy like reverse, like he gave 90% away that he moved in people's hearts like yeah there was the whole that that he made pretty fancy equipment and made a ton of money but really his heart was for living for god and and making this imprint of the gospel and so i'm a little uh, of this god understands that, that money can become this idol money and how we handle it and how we hold it open-handed or kind of getting our big clutched arms around it and keeping everybody back, it, it, it doesn't, it just shows the, the condition of our heart. And I think God's challenge to give the money, as they give, as they get back with God, money is this very tangible thing that sort of can show or reveal the, the, the condition of their hearts. And so my thoughts on tithing and like looking at this passage, I just want to say um, a couple things. Uh, um, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, a few years ago, I don't even know if that program's on. I remember listening to it on the radio. Um, I, 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 I always listen to him. It's like when this is like something pastors do. If there's like a Bible answer questioning thing, you like hear people call in with their question. You know, How would I answer the question? So I try to like spit out my answer before he spits out his answer. And I see the difference. Um, whenever I hear Dr. Laura, I do the same thing there, but I don't hear her anymore much. And uh, my answers are always way different than hers. Um, but so somebody called and asked him about tithing. And I was like, ooh, how's he going to handle this? And so he went into his talk about tithing And he said something that really caught my attention. And he said that he believes that tithing is training wheels for New Testament giving. And I thought that is really powerful. A training wheel, you have a little bike, you teach your kids how to ride, you start with training wheels, you put them on there, they they go through it. And then one day you pop off the training wheels and then they start riding their bike. And he went on to explain, which I totally agree with, that I believe that when we start looking at the New Testament, man, tithing would be quite simple. 
because when I look at the New Testament, the commands I see on how we handle our money is that we're supposed to be cheerful givers, like hilarious givers. That as, as we give to the church, to God's work, that it's not as a burden. It's, it's with joy, with cheerfulness, thankfulness, gratitude that God has um, of our income that we, uh, let's stick with tithing, that if we're taking 10% of our income, we're thanking God that we have this to, to, to give from. We're to do this cheerfully. We're to do it, the New Testament says, sacrificially sacrificially sort of steps up the ante of what they were giving. And the, Paul also calls the believers to give systematically. I believe that as we, as we receive income, I, I do personally believe that we're to tithe. But then beyond the tithe, as Christians, we're supposed to have open hands. And as we tithe, I found in my own life, when I began to get convicted about tithing, I really wrestled through this. I am a cheapskate. I'm fri- as long as it's like with stuff like this, I'm a cheapskate. But when it comes to like wasting money, I was like great with wasting money. I mean, I told you guys a couple of weeks ago at my at the casino what I used to do. So I wasn't like afraid of spending money as long as it was on my terms and my own wastefulness. But then as I began to get convicted about tithing, I was like down to the penny. Like I'm tithing. Boom, there it goes. But then as I started doing that, what I realized happening, what I realized happening, what I realized would begin to happen was that as I gave that 10%, I became more and more convicted about the 90%. Like I started to, I started to realize that as I gave, like this just wasn't mine to blow the whole idea of stewardship and that I'm going to give an account and that to who much has been given, much is required. By tithing, my whole financial life was transformed. I eventually got out of debt. I was in huge amount of debt. Like, and I started paying off debt and I started giving, not walking around with closed fists, but looking for opportunities that if I saw someone in need, that I would help them somehow. But tithing isn't about just the legalism of you check this box and you're good with, I, I do believe that our Christian giving, our tithing, it's our heart that matters. And I think that this is what God's, that he's pointing out, that he's exposing the problem with their hearts. The, the way that they come back to God is by opening up their hands, releasing their fear, embracing God, allowing themselves to trust him. And then they would begin to give and God would show them that it would be okay. It'll be Okay. I will take care of you. I will feed you. And I believe, like we don't test God today, but I do believe that as we give, it, it, it gives us this opportunity to say, God, I trust you. God, I give you thanks for what you've provided to me. Lord, I want to honor you with my resources. And this is what God wants. He wants our hearts. And so from verse 13 to four one. I'm going to kind of work through this. I'm just going to kind of highlight some things um, through this section. But what I want you to keep your ears open to is throughout from verse 13 to verse 1 of chapter 4, 
uh, it's almost this picture of God looking down from heaven and examining humanity. And all of humanity is sort of categorized into two groups. There's the, the, there's the unrighteous, which seem to be the bigger group. And God's going to deal with them and he's going to give warning to them. But the whole point of the warning is that they would repent and they would return and they would come to him. But then amongst this group, there's a smaller group of the righteous. And God sort of shares his heart of, uh, of how he feels about the righteous. And so verse 13, he begins, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. You say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. And so you see this group, this this unrighteous group that they seem to be a part of the religious group. I think all of these people are the religious. We're not talking about pagans and non-pagans. We're talking about the religious. We're talking about Israel. We're talking about worship in the temple. And they say, this is a vanity to serve God. Why do we keep doing this? What profit is there that we keep his instructions, that we go along with this? And now they call the arrogant blessed. It's like, I look at those outside of the faith and they they run and do whatever they want and they don't seem to get in trouble by God. That their discouragement of walking sort of led them astray. The ministry is a strange thing. I don't remember like as a seal having like bad days. Like, I mean, I know I had bad, I mean, I had bad days, but it was like bad days were like, it was very tangible, like bad days. Somebody broke their leg. Somebody died. Something like, it was very tangible. There were bad days and there were good days, but it wasn't like emotionally or spiritually based. Now that I'm a pastor and I hang around a lot of pastors, there's a lot of discouragement amongst pastors. Like this spiritual burden, like you talk about pastors on a Monday, like Ben and I say, like, we're just not even going to talk. We're not going to text on Mondays. Just let, let's push through Mondays. Give it to your family. Like, oh, like, like we're just like that. There's this sort of this spiritual weightiness uh, um, as you step out and serve God. And I don't think it's exclusive to pastors. We're, there's this spiritual line of things and it can lead to discouragement. And their discouragement had basically led them away from God. And he's just sort of showing this picture. Yesterday, I had something really sweet happen. Um, I didn't sell the person out. But yesterday, the mail came. So I walked down to the mailbox. I get the, the mail. And it's like, junk mail, junk mail, junk mail. Ooh, handwritten letter. Ooh, it's a person from the church. Uh-oh. Like, I'm like, this is bad. There was a handwritten letter from a lady in the church that through the envelope, I could see handwriting and I could see it was a lot of handwriting and I'm just sitting there going, I don't want to open this. <laughs> like, this is a person who we, like, I text, we, like, we're close enough that they could call, they, they would voice something, but the only reason for a letter was it was so bad and they were so mad at me that they needed to write it down and to send it to me. So my heart's like going, oh man. Like I saw it and I gave, like I remember, oh, Hannah, here's your mail. I'm going to kind of hang outside for a second just to kind of deal with, like I'm, and I open it 
And it's like, hey, we, the ladies, have been given this like task to write our pastor and encourage him. I'm like, whoa, 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 what? And I keep reading and I like didn't start crying, but like there was like just like so encouraging. And so I immediately texted and said, man, I thought I was in trouble. Like this was a super nice blessing. I get to church today because I don't want to say anything to Ben because I don't know if he got the letter. And uh, (laughs) he said, man, I got this letter. I'm like, dude, that was, he's like, it was overwhelming. So it's, it's. I don't know. I was super blessed by it. But when I see this, I see the discourage, like that there's this, it's vain to serve. It's not vain to serve God. Like as you walk with God, we are in a spiritual battle. We're going to have highs and lows. And through this whole book of Malachi, God, I think is trying to tell us that even as you're walking with him and we go through valleys of depression and discouragement, God is still there. He is still with you. He's he will encourage you. And then in verse 16, it's like God overhears a conversation. I love this. Then those who feared the Lord. So there's this group of people who fear the Lord. They spoke to one another. And it, clear, it doesn't say what they spoke to one another about, but the context sh- sh- lets us know that these were people who feared God and their conversation likely was of the vein of people who fear God, how they talk about God, how they revere God, how they honor God, how their words are pleasing to him. And as God hears this, it says, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Reading commentators try to talk about this book, like what's this book? Was this a real book? Or is this like, is he speaking figuratively? It's like, guys, you're missing the whole point. God was blessed by how these group of people, how they, how they were talking and how they were navigating life, how they were encouraging. God was so blessed by this. He says he got this book and he wrote their names down so he won't forget, not that God can forget anything, but, but sort of this picture that it was pleasing to him. And then in verse 17, he says, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So there's this promise of hope. We're going to see that this day of judgment, this day of fire and brimstone is coming. But to those who fear God, those who walk with God, there's going to be this sparing. And the desire is not that God wants to smite the earth. The desire of God is that all would come to repentance to him that they would heed his warnings, that they would return to him, as he says in verse 7. And verse 18, he says, So you will again dis- you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be shafted. And the day is coming, the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is, this should terrify those who are not walking with God. God says, fire is coming. Those who are not walking with me, 
this judgment is going to be so hot and fiery. We had, we're getting far enough away from the fires, but during the fires, when you are close to the fire, like it is a terrifying feeling. And it says that this fire is going to be so great that there's like total dust, like not root nor branch, nothing will be left because the fire is so bad. And this is the warning for the unrighteousness, for being unrighteous. But this is not God saying, I want to do this. God, throughout this book, has said, I have loved you. I don't want this. Come back to me. Come back to me. But he's not forcing anybody's hand. And then verse 2, I don't even know what to do with verse 2. This verse has just been making me happy for the last six weeks. And I thought I'd have something by now. And it's just wonderful. Um, So I want to really point it out to you colorfully. It says, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, not S-O-N, the little game that Christians like to play, not son, but like the son, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And then notice this phrase, you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Have you guys ever seen a baby calf? Like up at Anna's grandpa's house, he's got cattle. And every now and again, when you're up there, it's like a calf is born. And when they come out, of the, they, they come out like walking, but they don't quite know how to handle all of their parts. And they'll be like skipping, like kind of like, like it's just, you can't watch a baby anything without being like, oh, like you look at a baby calf and you're like, I want to take it home. It's 300 pounds, but we could fit it somehow. And then it's like, it'll be so cute. And then like within a month, they keep going bigger and bigger and bigger. Like one of my favorite things to do is to go over to the Frederick's house. Like every couple like months, they have baby goats. And the sooner you get over there, it's like the, they're like little ears sort of like flop around and they're just sort of happy and sort of aloof. But it just is like, it just is, brings good feelings. And this is the picture God uses for this day. So for those who fear God, for those who know God, for those who have responded to God in this day of judgment, there's no fear for us. This day is going to be joyful. I hope that there's video in this day to see all of you skipping around like little calves. It'll be funny to see, in my, but I'll be too busy skipping myself. So that's why I want there to be videos so I can look back and go, oh, look at Anna skipping. <laughs> like, that's hilarious. You know, like I can only make fun of my wife because I'll, <laughs> I have chores to do this afternoon anyhow. So I'm like, but I'll be making fun of myself. And it's like, but it's just like happiness. And it says, you will tread down the wicked for their ashes. <laughs> because remember, they were already set aflame. There's no more root or branch or anything. So they're, they're all dust. All there is is ashes. You will tread down on the wicked for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet in that day, which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. And he says, remember the law of Moses. I have a line. I don't know if you if you write in your Bible or not, but I, I have the line going back to chapter three, verse seven, right across the page. And, and there it says, remember from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. God says, I gave you instruction. I gave you the law. The law is not to make your life miserable. The law is not to, to harm you. The law is to help you and to, to, to live a life that's best for you. And he says, you, your fathers from all time, they've never followed the law. And now in verse four, he says, remember the law. I remember when I first came to the church here and we were going through some growth pains and George Farrington, the older pastor who's now gone home to be with the Lord. I remember I, I, I went up to him. I'm like, George, I don't know what to do. 
And he's like, Gunner, go read your con- go read the church's constitution. Go look back at what it says. Like, what do you mean, George? He's like, just just go, just go read the, just read it. And I remember I went back and I started reading this little document that I hadn't seen like or really paid much attention to. And then like the founders of the church had put all sorts of like biblical instructions for how to handle certain circumstances. And like, George, you guys have laid out from the Bible how to handle. He's like, that's what I told you. Remember, go back. Look what it says. Look what the Bible says. Do what the Bible says. And I think that this is what God's saying that like, remember the law of Moses, my servant, the statutes of ordinances, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Don't forget what I've said. What God wants is for us to walk with him. What God wants is to know that he loves us. What God wants is for his love for us to affect everything about us, that we would respond with passionate worship to him, that we would give him our marriages, that we would give him our relationships with our children, that we would trust him with our finances, that we would honor him with our finances, that we would have a life filled with peace. And then he says in verse five, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so now we come to this verse. Last week we looked at chapter three, verse one, which says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And then we have this verse with this, this prophet of Elijah is coming And there's this picture of God is saying that the Messiah is on his way, but before the Messiah comes, this prophet is going to come clear the way. Um, Last week, we looked at Luke 117. It's this great story of Zacharias at the temple. He's been selected to go into the holiest of holies. It's a once in a lifetime appointment. He's there um, doing the, the incense that go up to heaven. As he's doing this, The whole crowd is outside. The angel Gabriel appears and says, don't be afraid for your prayers have been heard and your old barren wife and you are going to have a son. And Zacharias is like, his his basic response is, how can I know this to be true? Gabriel's like, I'm I'm the angel Gabriel. I'm in the holiest of holies. I'm telling you, like that should be enough. And he quotes this passage Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. He says, your son will fulfill this prophecy. He will be a Nazarite, meaning he won't cut his hair. I imagine a reggae looking guy with dreadlocks, long beard. He will only eat honey and crickets. As I imagine like cricket legs in his beard and honey kind of dripping down. He'll sackcloth and ash. He won't touch dead things. He won't drink wine or any sort of thing from the vine. And as he goes out to prepare the way of the Lord, he is going to turn the hearts of Israel back to their Messiah and there will be nobody greater than your son. But because you didn't believe me, you're going to not be able to speak until your wife has the baby. Powerful using this uh, dealing with John the Baptist. But then there's some, for the last four weeks, if you were to take Ben and I's cell phone and start skimming our text message between each other, well, you'd probably get bored out of your mind. But for the last four weeks, we've been like trying to, well, what do you think about this? And Ben and I don't always see eye to eye, but we agree on how you handle things. Like even though we come down on different sides of the page. So it's kind of like a lot of times I'll say, well, I kind of think this, are you going to call me a heretic if I say this? Like, what's like the, like, where's the line? And so there's, there's this dialogue about how does John the Baptist fulfill this? 
So the problem is, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 1, I'm going to be quick. So after the promise is made from Gabriel that John the Baptist would fulfill this prophecy of Malachi. There's Zacharias in the temple. There's no New Testament. The, basically, the last line of the Bible of their time, the angel says, your son is going to fulfill this prophecy. Now, when John 1, verse 21, or really back to verse 19, John the Baptist is introduced, and it says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent him to the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed that he did not deny, but he, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. So there's sort of like kind of the prompt, like, wait a minute, Gabriel said you were this guy. And now when you're asked, you're on record saying that you're not. And then he would kind of go back and forth their exchange. And finally they say, well, who are you? And he says, I am just, he quotes Isaiah says, I'm just, a voice in the wilderness crying out, who I am isn't ma- like who I am doesn't matter. What I'm saying about the coming Messiah, that's the only thing that matters about my life. Now, if we fast forward to, to Matthew or go back, I guess, uh, to the front to Matthew chapter 11. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, which we'll get to in a few months here. So now in Matthew 11, John the Baptist is under arrest. He will be killed in in chapter 14 of Matthew. And so while he's under arrest, the story picks up. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, that's the Baptist, while in prison, heard the works of of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected to one? Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? So basically John's under arrest. He has his disciples. John in his own right was a very uh, well-known man within Israel in his own right, in his own ministry. This is the same guy that when he baptized Jesus already, When Jesus came to him to be baptized, he said to Jesus, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal, but he did baptize him. And as he baptized him, what happens? The father speaks out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son. And now he's under arrest and he has questions, which I have a lot of thoughts, but I am kind of encouraged. That here, John the Baptist, who is the prophet that is predicted in scripture, who is the forerunner of Christ, is now in prison, is a little discouraged, is a little unsure about how things are unfolding. So he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah (laughs) or are we looking for somebody else? And so they get to Jesus in verse four and Jesus answers and says to them, go and report to John what you hear, quoting from Isaiah The blind receive sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So Jesus doesn't just end with ats or with a yes or no. He basically answers quoting scripture. And in that quoting, he says, yes, I am the Messiah and John will know. And so the guys leave. Verse 7, as the men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. 
What did you go out? Oh, wait, hold on a second. Okay, so they went away. They go back to report to John. Now John's sitting here with, or Jesus is sitting here with a crowd of people. Jesus has a great sense of humor. I hope we see, going through Matthew, his sense of humor. Remember, I described John, crazy looking guy. Ragged hair, eating crickets and honey, um, burlap in the Jordan River, just simply screaming out to people, challenging them. It says that he like called out their sins. I don't know if he supernaturally knew and just basically confronted them. I'm glad I wasn't there. Um, and so Jesus begins, verse 7, to speak to the crowds about John. And he asks the question, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So when he was out there baptizing people, challenging them from the sin, did you go out there to watch the reeves kind of just blow in the wind? And the answer is like, absolutely not. They went to go see John the Baptist. But what did you go out to the sea? A man dressed in soft clothing. Here he is making fun of white-collar people. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. <laughs> Clearly, John the Baptist did not fit in king's palaces. So they didn't go to look at him for his fine clothes or his fine looks or his fine etiquette. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet... This is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger among you who will prepare the way before you, quoting Malachi 3.1. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not one arisen any greater than John the Baptist. And so Jesus here, attain, uh, he says that he is John the Baptist. And if we fast forward to Matthew 17, if you'll turn there with me, just keep turning. We're really close. After the transfigura- transfiguration, Transfigurization, transfigured, transfigurization. I'm having a hard time with the word right now. Jesus' deity comes out. He glows white. John, James, uh, Peter, James, and John are there. They see Jesus reveal his true nature to them. They're coming down from the hill. In verse 9 of Matthew 17, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now listen to their question. They recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says, what you saw, let no man know about until after I've been crucified and risen from the dead. And they asked Jesus, if this, like clearly you're the Messiah, but all of the biblical teachers, they say that Elijah must come first before the Messiah. Why do they say that? If you're here and Elijah hasn't come back and they just saw Elijah in the transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured, that's easier for me to say right now. So clearly they understood they were looking at Malachi 2. It says that, that Elijah will come first. And Jesus says in verse 12, but I say to you that Elijah has already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So Jesus, looking back, you can go back to Malachi. He says, he was here. He was here and they missed him. And they did what they wanted to at his hands. Prophecy has been fulfilled, boys. Like they're missing the boat. And as I come back to Malachi, these very last verses, I really promise you I'm almost done. And when a pastor says that, it means nothing. <laughs> it, 
in the dialogue that Ben and like, I've really appreciated the Ben and I, our, our dialogue over these issues. And one thing over the years in studying like eschatology, which is the study of end times, these prophetic events, God has really changed my heart. And one of the things God has changed my heart on, as I read through the Gospels, the Pharisees describes the experts of the law. They were so committed to being right and their interpretation that they missed the Messiah. They missed what God was doing in their midst because they were so committed to being right that they missed the very thing that God was doing. And so I don't want to miss what God is doing before me. And I have strong convictions about end times and my things, but I hold them very open-handed. I have very close brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord who don't see it the same way as I do, and that's okay. I don't want to be like the Pharisees and say, I, like, I'm not God. It's not a, I'm not the one flipping the switch at the end. And so when we look at this passage and we see this, there is a problem. There is, if we were back then and we weren't looking back at the cross, chapter three, verse one is saying like there's one thing. And then chapter four, verse five, it talks about this great and terrible day of the Lord. But this great and terrible day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. And so this is what we call a dual fulfilled prophecy Chapter 3, verse 1, and part of 4, there's this picture of the first coming of Christ. But now that we've seen him coming, we've seen John the Baptist, there's still more to come. And so there's a second coming. And so somehow Elijah, maybe it's John the Baptist, I don't know. But there will be this Elijah. In Revelation 11, we see two witnesses. So we see that Elijah will be coming. We don't know who the other guy is. It's not really clear. But in all of this, in all of my wrestling this week, I stumbled upon a quote by John Piper who, who preached a message on this. I didn't listen to it, but I, I, I read it. And he said something that was profound. The so what? What does this matter? And John Piper says this. Apart from the details, what is the main point of this prophecy? The main point is that God precedes the wrath of judgment with the call of mercy. He sends messengers to Sodom and Nineveh and Jerusalem and Minneapolis. That's where he's a pastor. Before he pours down fire and brimstone and not just one, but a whole line of messengers. And so many in this that John fulfilled this, but John wasn't literally Elijah, but kind of that he fulfilled this prophecy that he came in the spirit of Elijah and this whole spirit of Elisha. John Piper, which it's not exactly precisely what it says, but there's a principle here that I'm okay with going with, is that you can say that any person who's given warning is sort of within the spirit of Elijah, that if anybody has given warning to the wrath that comes and has told about the gospel of Christ, that Christ died for you, that he paid the penalty for your sins so that you might have life and peace and hope, there was warning. That in this, God gives warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. God is so much more patient than any of us are with sin and dealing with other people. And so in all of Malachi, I see this love of God and this great mercy of, of God. Uh, this Friday, we went to the Christmas on the Prado. I know they call it December nights, but I'm a, I'm a rebel. It will always be December nights for me. Or I just messed up. It will always be Christmas on the Prado. 
And so when we went there, after we um, get my first volley of food in the international houses, you get into the actual area. And as we're walking in, you could see the big old signs that are lit up. And it's like, oh, man, are these like protesters or something? But then as I got closer, there were like fancy witnessing signs. And I'm like, oh, man, are these guys going to be Christians that make me embarrassed? That I'm like, I'm like kind of as I'm getting closer, I'm like, what is like, what's the situation of these people? Like, what are they doing? But then as I got close, they had their signs up. They were lit up, basically saying that God's wrath is coming. There are other signs that say Jesus paid so you don't have to face the wrath. Turn to him. I agreed with everything that was written there. As I walked by, the people that were sitting there smiling, shaking people's hands. They had free Bibles if people wanted Bibles. And I'm like, this is powerful. Like, I could tell Grace, is, my daughter's going to be one of them. She's like, I want to be one of those guys someday. I want to, I'm like, you go, girl. She's an evangelist. And, and in some ways, I'm like, going, I hope there's so many people. Hopefully somebody responded to this message. And in some way, these people standing there are sort of in the spirit of Elijah warning people because God is sending people. If you've ever warned somebody, whoever told you about Christ and warned you of the wrath that was going to come because of your sin, you responded this way. It's beautiful. Look at verse six where I'll end with. He will restore the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. I've always misinterpreted this. And, and you probably have too. See, I've always read this and taken it out of context. He will, if there's the tithing one, this is the other verse I know from Malachi. He will restore the hearts of fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers, this beautiful picture of sort of reconciliation that, 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 that in all of this, and you're turning back what God cares, like with theology and your relationship with God, it, it, it works out in the nitty gritty. And there's no more nitty gritty than like your intimate family, which he's dealt with relationships, father, children, husbands, wives, how you deal with one another. You, God's love should transcend these relationships. And so I've always read this and the he in this has always been in my mind that it was God that was doing this changing of heart. But you have to follow these. Who's the he? It's not God. Let's go back to verse five. Behold, I, that's God, am going to send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great terrible day of the Lord. He that's Elijah, will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I, God, will not come and smite the land with the curse. And I think when you read it here, it's like the mercifulness of God comes to life. He's sending Elijah so that we would get right with each other that, that these warnings, that these, pro, these prophecies, all of these would come so that we would first return to God, that we would get right with each other, that we would love our spouses the way we should love our spouses, that we would love our children so that when that day comes, we don't have to go through the wrath that he warns about. And this is a beautiful picture of God's love and mercy. And I've spent enough time here, so I promise you I won't go over, but I lied. <laughs> Whoops. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you. Um, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, I don't think that this side of heaven, we can truly, fully understand how great your love is for us. Father, as we look at this book of Malachi, I see many warnings. I see that our worship matters. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to take you seriously, that we would repent, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would respond 
Father, we thank you for this gift of Christ that we celebrate this Christmas season, his coming, that he came as a lamb to the slaughter so that we could have life, that we could have freedom, that we could have joy, that we would have true happiness in Christ. Father, so often we turn our eyes to this world and we stop trusting you and we have idols of money, we have idols of all sorts of things. And so, Father, we pray that we would cast these idols down, that we would worship you in truth and love. We thank you that you are a merciful God. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.